Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. I'm Solari Gentle and I am delighted to welcome you to Present Danger. Um, can I start by saying that uh, we meet on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation um, and offer my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend those same respects to any other Aboriginal people who might be present. Uh, this session is called Present Danger and what we are looking at through the eyes of these very esteemed writers is how present circumstances and modern situations and modern technology has created dangers that may not have been pertinent to classic crime fiction um, or cold cases, uh, things that are an advent of our time to create suspense, to create real danger and to create new ways of dealing with it. So first um, to my left here is J.P. Pomare, um, who is an award-winning writer whose work has been widely published. His debut novel, Call Me Evie, was critically acclaimed and won the Nao Marsh Award for Best First Novel. Now that's uh, New Zealand's premier crime writing prize. Uh, JP's novels In the Clearing and The Last Guest were critically acclaimed bestsellers, while his novel Tell Me Lies was a number one audible bestseller and was shortlisted for the Nao Marsh Award for Best Novel and the Ned Kelly Award for Best Crime Fiction. Um, most recently, uh, JP's novel In the Clearing um, is about to go into production with Disney into a, a limited series of eight-part limited series. Um, so we'll talk further again about the transition um, of the written word and uh, the themes of the written word into the screen. Um, to, on the other end, we have Tim Ailiff. Tim Ailiff has been a journalist for more than 20 years and is the managing editor of television and video for ABC News. He writes global crime thrillers featuring uh, former foreign correspondent John Bailey, uh, who may have a few similarities to himself. Uh, he is the author of The Greater Good, State of Fear and The Enemy Within. Ailiff's currently working on the fourth John Bailey novel and his Bailey books have also been optioned for television. When he's not writing or chasing news stories, Tim rides bikes and surfs. And in the middle, of course, uh, Carolyn Ovington barely needs any introduction at all. Uh, she's the literary editor at The Australian, uh, a two-time Walkley winner for investigative journalism, host of the true crime documentary The Disappearance of William Terrell, and the author of 15 books. Her most recent novel, The, the Cuckoo's Cry, was published in 2021. So I thought the way we'd start is... Yes, please. <laughs> uh, I thought the way we'd start is I'd, uh, I'd speak to each of these authors about, about the book that uh, there's currently, or their most recent book, to give you an idea of the background against which we're going to frame this uh, conversation. Uh, so Josh, could you tell us a little bit about The Last Guess and what 
what was going through your mind despite uh, a decision to destroy the Airbnb monopoly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it's a pretty noble pursuit. It didn't work. I, mean, I don't sell enough books, I think. Um, no, so, so yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, at the heart of the story is um, capital, um, surveillance capitalism and uh, the ways we sort of open our lives up to new forms of crime, um, particularly voyeurism and, and that sort of thing. But it, it, the seed of the story was born out of uh, an experience I had where we had an apartment in South Yarra in, in uh, Melbourne where we lived and we also had a little place out in the country we'd, we'd go to and we sort of decided we'll just start airbnb our apartment out and if people book it then we'll go to the other place and um, the very first time I did it we did this thing and we, did, we still do this by the way but I no longer care who stays but at, at first I did this thing where we just googled them you know and we found the social media because it's, you, it's you're letting someone into your home you know um, and you want to know about them so we found their LinkedIn everything um, and from memory there are a couple from Adelaide they probably don't know how much I talk about them <laughs> Five, five or six years later, um, but but so we let them. Yeah, so so basically, uh, we did our due diligence, um, stalking, and um, and we found out. So they said they're coming for a wedding and stuff, and they seemed pretty normal. So we also wanted good reviews, and Airbnb do this to like make sure you first have a lower price and be nice to your guests and stuff. So we got a really nice bottle of wine, and um, in your late twenties, that that's about 30 bucks, you know. Um, so we got, got a nice bottle of wine and we got some nice soap and milk and had this good little kit and, and just did the place up really nicely for them. Um, and they stayed and we were just a little bit anxious and we came home and it was spotless, perfect, beds were stripped and, um, and we found the bottle of wine in the fridge and there was about a, a glass missing. About one glass, and we're just like. How did you feel judged? No, I didn't. <laughs> I do now. Um, <laughs> um, no, I just, I just, it was just this thing where we were like, um, I, I remember pulling it out and we sort of cleaning up. I'm like, we can, can we drink this? Um, <laughs> and we didn't. But, but I just remember thinking, what's the worst that could happen? They were sophisticated types. They wouldn't have drunk out of the bottle. This was pre-COVID. Um, <laughs> And like we get a cold, worst case scenario, if they nicked it out of the bottle, these mid-50s from Adelaide. Um, so we ju- I'll just remember, logically, I'm like, of course we could. Of course. And, but I think my wife's more sensible. She's like, no, we won't. Um, but it, I, I, it sort of set this kind of... I'm like, that's not the worst that could happen. Them. I was like, they, they could have put something in the wine. And then so I sort of went down this rabbit hole and I was thinking the absolute worst thing that could happen is they get the keys cut and they put cameras through the house. So, um, so they were great guests anyway. I checked the cameras. They didn't take anything. They were great. No. Um, but yeah, it was just born out of that. And that's, that's um, the seat of the story. And if I say anything else, it'll be spoilers. So. Okay. Caroline, do you want I to follow that I just want to say up? that is such a good idea. It is. Such it's a fabulous. brilliant idea. I just assumed that when you left milk in the fridge at the Airbnb or whatever, that the person then took it after you left. I just, just, oh. did, I just assumed that. So what do you think happens to the little bits of milk that you leave at the hotel? I thought they just took them and put them in their own house. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they grew up poor. Um, no, so my book is very different. It's about lockdown. Um, the idea was we have a really old guy. He lives in Bondi, which is where I live. And in one of those old sort of fisherman cottages, which is kind of what I live in, 
and he is uh, lonely. His kids have grown up and moved out of home and they've got their own lives. They've got grandkids, but they live, live a long way away. So he's highlight of his day is wandering down to the milk bar each morning to get the paper and walking home. Not a lot going on. And then one day there's a knock at the door and there's a girl standing there and he doesn't recognise her. She's a bit punkish. She's got pink hair. She looks a bit interesting. And she tells him, you don't know me, but we're related. And she explains how. And he says, oh, interesting. So come on in because he's a nice fella. So she comes in and she says, I'm in trouble. I need somewhere to stay. And he says, of course, and makes up the the bed in the spare room, and then comes the lockdown, and he cannot ask her to leave. And so the idea for the tension in the book is, who is she? Is she telling the truth about who she is? Can he trust the things she says? And of course, his adult children, who now can no longer visit him, who really didn't visit him anyway, who left him kind of a bit lonely, are now a long way away, can't breach the various borders that have been erected, and so can't come and check up. So they're sort of seeing on Facebook, this girl is moving in. And what's she up to? And of course, the land in Bondi where they were raised was worth nothing when he bought it and is now worth a whole lot. And they're kind of worried about who and why she's there. So that's the story. It started life as an audiobook. Like JP, I did a deal with Audible, uh, which releases audiobooks in Australia. Perhaps because of the lockdown topic, perhaps because there were so many people at home, it was downloaded 350,000 times, which was astonishing to me. I mean, astonishing. I, I, I still can barely get my head around it. But because of that, my publisher in Australia then said, let's turn it into a real book, a book you can hold, and release it in Australia as a printed book. So it now exists as a real book as well, which I think, did you do that as well? Yeah. yeah. So, so is the printed book the same as the audio book or did you add more or it's take... not, it, it is practically identical. There were a couple of things that when I wrote the book for Audible became Americanized as they often do, which have now become Australianized again, but the story is essentially the same. And I'm told that that is happening quite often. People are writing audio books that are then becoming print books. I know that you did it, and I know that I think Christian White has done it as well. I'm seeing him later in the festival, so I'll ask him. And, so and Dervla McKinnon, I think, has. I think Anne Dervla as well has written some books. And I think even Kate Grenville has written an audible book this year, which may become a print book. So it's a, it's a thing that's happening. You listen to them. Um, because it was an audible book, it was quite short, and I think people listen to them when they're on the treadmill or they're, well, these days you can get back on the bus and you can get back on a plane, and in those days people just were cleaning the house listening to audiobooks, which yeah. perhaps explained why it was suddenly so successful, but I was thrilled. Yeah, so did, for it to be released during the lockdown in COVID, you wrote it before the lockdown? No, I wrote it during the lockdown. I wrote it in about six and a half weeks. Okay. Mm. Oh, it wow. was really quick. It's short. I mean, yeah. it's a, a normal book is about, well, when I say a normal book, no such thing, obviously, but a, a crime thriller is about 85,000 to 100,000 words. You're in that sort of place. Um, the Cuckoo's Cry is about 45,000 words, so it's really short. You can listen to it in a four and a half hours, I think. Um, mm. Whereas some audiobooks, depending on which ones you get, are more like seven hours. This is a short. It's designed to let you listen to it within a week if you listen to it for an hour a day on the treadmill. That's the plan. Did you read it? Did I read it? Yeah. I, no. <laughs> I was going to say, I read it, but then I suddenly realised what you meant. <laughs> Did you read it? Is it any, any good? I'm no, hoping you yeah. no, <laughs> Let me know. I, I'm part of this absolutely fantastic Audible program 
where they do blind readings. So this is really interesting, right? They want to increase the amount of diversity that they have in voice actors because almost all the voice actors in Australia are white people. And that's because almost all of the books in Australia are written by white people and the, white, and the characters are all white as well. So what they want to do is try to increase the diversity and make the stories more interesting. But what happens is when you're going to hire a voice actor, you think, oh, this is an old guy in Bondi. You know, he wanders down to the shop every day to get the payback. It has to be an old white guy. Read the book. So what they did was they did blind auditions. So they, all they heard was the voice. They didn't see the face. And amazingly, the amount of diversity shot up by almost 50%. So suddenly I have people who are reading my books who are so diverse and so interesting and absolutely brilliant. I have one on, the, on audio at the moment where almost no one says anything good about the story. They all say, my God, the narration's brilliant. And the girl who did it is not a, is not a, a white Australian girl the way the character is. She's just a really good voice actor who couldn't get a break before. And I just thought that was fascinating, so interesting. I'm so proud to be part of that program too. Come on. I think you're, you're probably in it as well, aren't you? The Audio Diversity Program? I can't, I it's got know. a name. They don't I'll tell remember. me anything. They don't tell you anything. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, Jeff Bezos is busy you, on his yacht. They just go, do you like this one or this one? I'm like, they're both great. You decide. Um, <laughs> I mean, interestingly, in your book, I don't, I don't know if I missed a sentence, but I don't remember anything saying that those characters were white. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. You assume that an old guy living in Bondi from about that time will be white, but why would you assume that? It's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, so um, interesting. So, yeah, I, 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 for some reason, when I read Morgan, didn't see her as a white How funny. Yeah. person at all. And so then when she became his granddaughter, everybody changed colour and tan. <laughs> 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 Tim, can you tell us a little bit about John Bailey's third outing? Right. So, um, yeah, The Enemy Within, um, the third book in the in the series. So my books, are, they're, um, I like to think there are everything in them either has happened, will happen or could happen. So with that, with my day job being in journalism is like research. The first book, um, the Greater Good was Australia stuck in the middle of the US-China power struggle, which, you know, I may write again soon. But um, the second one is around um, Islamic, Islamist terrorism. Um, and this third one is probably the closest thing to reality that I've, that I've written. And in fact, I've drawn a, a lot on kind of world events and things that were happening. And, and you can trace lots in the book and do little searches and you'll find that the accuracy is, is hopefully there. But what this was based on is two things. So a few years ago, I'm sitting at my desk in the ABC and one of my you know, colleagues ran over and said that we're being raided by the, by the AFP, the Australian Federal Police. And what the, the AFP were after was the source of a story written by a couple of great ABC journalists, Sam Clark and Dan Oakes. Um, they'd written about alleged um, human rights violations by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. So um, the fact that they were in the ABC raiding us was, you know, incredibly confronting. But even more confronting was the warrant that was used to raid the ABC that day. And it had a line in it that still haunts me now that had gave them the power to add, copy, delete or alter the ABC's files in the course of their investigation. And that, that warrant was signed off by a district court judge, a New South Wales district court judge, to give them that, the power to raid the ABC. And the ABC wasn't the first to feel the weight of the force of um, the authorities. Annika Smithhurst, a News Corp journo, had had, you know, her undie drawers 
you know, rip through in her house, you know, looking for something similar. So um, that power and that warrant really worried me. And I'm not suggesting for a second we've got bad eggs in the Australian Federal Police that would misuse that power, but the fact that power exists and it was signed off by a district court judge um, really worried me. So that's a, a plot line. The AFP, they're going after John Bailey for a, a source of a story that, of course, he's not going to give up. The second plot line in this book um, is around far-right nationalism and, and white supremacist groups and how we're seeing that really rise up, you know, not only in Australia but all around the world. We saw another attack you know, only um, a few days ago in Buffalo where 13 people were killed by um, a young man who'd been radicalised online. So um, with those two things, the book sort of kicks off with John Bailey um, after, for those who have read the, the, the second book, he's had a bit of a tough time in that book and he's just getting his life back together really and, and he's, um, he's, he's working on a special investigation into far-right nationalism and there's a, you know, American polemicist out in Australia, he's doing a, a speech to, um, to the faithful around, you know, why it's okay to be racist and, and say the things you feel um, and uh, he goes along to investigate this guy um, and there's an incredibly interesting crowd of people there. So those two stories really collide in this, in this book. Um, and, you know, it really allows me to, to delve into, and that's when I talk to the journalism behind the fiction that I write, how young, and particularly men, and they're usually always young, you know, white males, are, um, are radicalised. Um, and how the way we communicate today through social media, how there's been a lot of mistrust um, in mainstream media, and a lot of that because of um, the way that they've been, mainstream media have been torn down by a lot of, you know, politicians when it's convenient, that, um, you know, it's made our job harder. So that was something I really wanted to look into. And if you look around the world today, you know, there are far-right nationalist leaders in, you know, half a dozen countries and, and, and growing. Um, so it's a real, a real <laughs> issue. And the soundtrack to the end of that was just fantastic. <laughs> that's like the, the Oscars. Mood, the mood, the Oscars. Yeah, the that's mood it. Music. You're playing off music. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm out. Next thing you know, Chris Rock is coming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, Martin, the, the far, the far right movements that have been, they seem to emanate from the US, mm. um, have been infiltrating into Australia in actual fact. So, how much truth? Um, is, is behind that picture. How scared should I be? Well, look, um, my books, I want them to be page turners. I want people to be entertained by them. I want them to, you know, be gripped and by a thrilling novel. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, but there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of truth in, in this story particularly, unfortunately. And that is because through social media, it's this ungovernable kind of, you know, um, wild west, if you like, where you might have a young you know, young teenager sitting in his, in his room, um, feeling like he's sort of disconnected at school or feeling that, you know, he's outcast or that he's got a rough trot, you know, the rise in between rich and poor inequality is growing and those pressures are building and people are looking for people to blame. So um, when you, you look at how interconnected what's going on in America and, and Europe and, you know, other, uh, other parts of the world is, you only need to go online to feel like you're not alone. And that's when you, you may only have 50 people in, um, say, Western Sydney that feel this way. But then there's another 50, you know, in, in the East. And then another 100 in, in Victoria. And then suddenly you're feeling like you're part of something bigger. 
and you are, you know, you're galvanised, you're encouraged to do something. And that's what we've seen with some of these attacks. And that's why I say they are mostly by young white males. They're feeling like they're part of something bigger. In the United States, on Fox News, you've got Tucker Carlson talking about the Great Replacement Theory over and over again. For those that don't know it, um, this is spawned by a French writer, you know, a few decades ago that writes about um, the fact that, uh, you know, white civilization is being replaced through immigration. Um, so you can tie that to many political leaders. You can tie that, you know, in terms of the, 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 the language they use. But in, in America, you've got Fox News reaching tens of millions of people every day and Tucker Carlson's their most popular anchor and he's talking about replacement as a huge challenge in America. You've got a kid watching that at home and then he goes online and he connects with a few other people that say, yeah, yeah, this is a real thing, this is a problem. Suddenly, you know, it's not hard to buy a gun in America. Um, now, both you and Caroline um, set your books within the very contemporary... Um, uh, situation in Australia. So this John Bell is contending with smoke in Sydney um, as as he moves about his world. So you're pre-COVID. Um, you're bushfires. Bushfires. The end of the bushfires. To be pre-COVID, so that you didn't have to. Because um, I, I presume you know it's just masks might have been handy for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, look, I, I, um, I wrote it in the backdrop of, of the bushfire summer, you know. I think that we were just coming out of that bushfire summer, it added to the tension of Sydney. And for me, um, Sydney's very much a character in my books, and I'm really exploring, you know, it for its, its, its beauty and for, you know, the ugly sort of underbelly there as well. But also, you know, the pressures that people are feeling in their lives. So when you've got bushfires on top of that and you can smell smoke and you've got white supremacists, you know, potentially looking to do something bad um, and, and the AFP on your doorstep, there's a, there's a bit of tension there that you can draw on. But I, I, do, I do like not just a sense of place but a sense of time. So the bushfires allowed me to do that. And I think for all the readers, um, you, get, you can connect with that book. Um, because you've heard, you, you either experienced the bushfires yourself, and we all did, let's face it, whether you're breathing the smoke or you're watching the television or reading the papers. But in America and in Europe, they're all, they're all seeing that as well. I mean, I think it was a big global event. Um, and if I'm writing global thrillers set in Sydney, I want to connect with readers wherever I can. And, um, and more and more so, I see Sydney being a, a great place to tell those stories from because strategically, Australia is becoming incredibly... Um, important in terms of the US alliance and where we sit in the region and, and, and the future. Now, I know um, I'm from the country where the bushfires actually were and it seems to have divided existence into before the bushfires and after the bushfires. So I see what you mean by it being a big global marker. Josh, your, your book doesn't touch on COVID or bushfires at all, does it? And did you make that a conscious decision to sort of create a timeless piece in the whole notion of people are retreating to this place? Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, no? No, although, <laughs> yeah, no, I did, actually. Uh, yeah, you did. No, <laughs> I did. Um, what do you want to hear? <laughs> no, no, what happened was it's set in New Zealand and, um, yep. and we don't, it doesn't burn every year yet. Yep. Um, and so I, I didn't need to address that. I think there was conversations around COVID, but, um, I mean, it came out when this, 
future was still really yeah. uncertain. I mean, yeah. it's uncertain now, but it was much more so back then. And I didn't want to write post-COVID because we didn't know what the world would look like. Yep, exactly. um, especially That's with Airbnb, point. like travel and, 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 and that sort of thing. But I was thinking just when um, Tim was speaking, I was like, I'm reading this brilliant book where there's these um, the fires are a backdrop. And then I was like, Who's, what book is it? What book is it? I'm actually reading Slary's <laughs> book at the moment. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it is, I think it's important, um, as, as Tim was answering, I think it's important also... Um, to because it, because it does it happens most years it feels like in Australia and I think it's important um, it gives context to the to the story in terms of an existential crisis which is what we sort of deal with in um, in crime fiction anyway there's lots of people dying and stuff but but it's also a broader existential crisis so I do like what you've both done in terms of addressing that yeah. it's interesting though with those existential crises a crises if your book isn't about that so Caroline your book is directly about that so it takes over the whole narrative but the danger with um with novels where it isn't about that is that it takes over the narrative anyway um so writers are faced with this decision of how much do they want to let COVID encroach into their book Mm. um which is you know and and I I know I kind of felt it was almost a relief to read yours because it it was that, even though it was really a creepy it's not retreat. Why I write, by it the was way. Kind of, <laughs> it shouldn't be a relief. You should, no, be, no, you should I mean, be stressed. I was. I was, but I wasn't stressed by COVID. Okay, <laughs> I was stressed by cameras <laughs> in the background. And, and this general creep, this feeling of being watched, which is interesting in this day and age because so many of us put our lives out into the public mm. arena. We post onto Facebook and Twitter and so on, and we live our lives in a curated way mm-hmm. uh, under the public gaze. And yet, the very idea that someone is watching without you knowing is so inherently creepy. But you do, you know, when you put something on Instagram, uh, unless your privacy settings are very strict, and even then, there's sort of workarounds. You don't know what other people are doing with your content, right? Um, so we do this. I think the problem is people. We, it's, social media isn't really warts and all, right? You're right, it's curated. And I think there's, there's this real discomfort with surveillance and that you know, like, people aren't, like, aren't worried about much you know, in terms of being viewed by the other or whatever. But I think they're worried about, and, and this is going to sound bizarre, but I think they're worried about how they look a bit as well. I think they're worried about being seen in a vulnerable kind of way, you know, much more so than this kind of what we put out there on social media. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's part of it as well. It's, it's, it is creepy and all that, but it's also, you, if you realise someone had been watching you, you'll be like, oh, what, was I, what did I do? You know, like, it's, there's that as well. How, how did I look? Um, so there's, a, there's that, that as well, I think. People are conscious of that. Um, but, in, you know, I wanted to also go beyond that and, and take it to... Um, I guess the extreme of what people can do with the data and the information you put out there as well, like your running app, you know, you go for a run and you post it and then anyone, anyone if it's public, but certainly anyone following you can see where you live, right? And what time you go for a run and your running route, right? I run around Princess Park where I used to, um, before I gave that up. Um, but, but, I, but when I was running, I'm like, it's in Melbourne, it's a place that's, there, there have been a number of really horrible crimes that have happened in this park. And I was just thinking, the if you run at night, and you, you particularly if you're a young female in that area, and it's a very there's lots of uni students around there, 
and you did the same loop and you use this app because you get that social validation. People like your run and they can see how fit you are. And you're doing that, you know, Tuesday night, Thursday night, or whatever. Anyone can see that you do that. They can, they can track that behaviour and go, I know where this person runs at this time. And so there's just little things like that that um, often we're not really conscious of because we just see the upsides of social media and we see the upsides of these tracking apps, but we don't really think of... Um, yeah, what, what that opens us up to. Yeah. Well, I heard an amusing story about one of those Fitbits. You know how they track your heart rate and they track your sleep and that kind of thing? And a woman in the US found out that her husband was having an affair because she, <laughs> downloaded, yes, she downloaded his Fitbit data and at like 3 o'clock in the morning when he was meant to be, I don't know, in the office, it was going... <laughs> Wow. I thought, it, well, there's, that's a good way to keep an eye on people. That's a good plot. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah. it it's like the yours. ultimate lie detector. <laughs> <laughs> but Caroline, when you were, when you were uh, creating The Cuckoo's Cry, central in that story is the character of Don, yeah, yeah. who everybody falls in love with. I have an Uncle Don that's oh, just like that. Yeah, yeah. A thoroughly decent man. Um, and he, to me, he was, he was almost... Um, representative of a bygone era uh, where it was, you know, all about honour and doing the right thing and he was um, thoroughly good and which in a modern context may be considered utterly naive. Um, Well, you know, I live surrounded by Dons because Bondi is very much that kind of suburb. I moved there in the early 90s. Um, and it was it was poor. There were lots of um, lots of quite rough pubs, and the houses were a bit falling down. In first, the first the first hangman in New South Wales lived in Bondi in an old shack up on on Ben Buckler, um, and you could get a house for about fifty five thousand. We didn't pay much more than that. Um, and then, of course, it's had a radical <laughs> transformation. So now I, I used to be able to walk to the milk bar in my pyjamas in the morning and nobody would blink an eye and I've got an old dog that I drag around with me. And now it's all Ferraris and girls in gold bikinis and, and stiletto heels and restaurants you can't get into. I went to a, have a drink with a girlfriend on Friday night at the Pacific Hotel in Bondi and we ordered two martinis and a bowl of corn chips and it was $85. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on with my suburb? And around me all those people that have been there for a really long time. You know exactly who they are. Um, they're very, very decent. Um, can they be taken advantage of? For sure, because they're suddenly sitting on millions, not, not a little bit of money, millions and millions of dollars. I, I just noticed in the paper the other day, one of my colleagues, my old colleagues, Ruth Ostro, who used to write like a sex column for the Australian many years ago, was hugely popular. She also wrote a lot of business too. She wrote a lot of business news for the Australian, had just sold her place in Bondi for $6 million. Now that to me is an astonishing amount of money to have suddenly vulnerable because you have a lot of people who are old, a lot of people who need help, a lot of people who are lonely, a lot of people who maybe have a little bit of dementia kicking in. Are they vulnerable? You bet they are. And, um, and so you, you beautifully use that vulnerability, but also um, you also, I, I, I think, depicted quite compassionately Danielle's worries. Oh, his daughter, who's yeah. yeah. So she's got, she's moved off and she's started to trying to start a business around the Hunter Valley sort of area. So she's got a bed a bed and breakfast with cameras, so she can watch the guests. <laughs> no, 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 I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> so, so she's got a bed and breakfast. She's got a restaurant. Her husband is the chef. She's got a couple of teenage kids. So although it's true that she doesn't visit her dad and she doesn't go down and see if he's doing okay, 
you know her too because she's crushed. Mm. She's crushed by the responsibilities of motherhood, by, by teenage children, by trying to run a business, by looking after her husband, by doing what. So she's also sandwiched. So, yes, there are characters in there that I think are representative of some of the roles we're all having to play. My own life at the moment is ab I'm in that, that absolute sweet spot. My kids are 22 and have jobs, and my parents are in their 70s and not at all ailing. So I'm like... <laughs> touch, touch wood. Oh, touch God. wood immediately. <laughs> so Here, I feel touch like my I've books. Got like... <laughs> it's wood. It's wood. <laughs> I feel like I've got like two minutes where I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Talking of doing whatever you want, Tim, um, did you have to watch uh, what you wrote bearing in mind your position at the ABC? Was there a conflict... Uh, in relation to what you might have known as a journalist or might have been privy to and what you can put Look into. at him. <laughs> Look at him, him breach those suppression orders I'm right a, here. I'm a fiction writer, Solari. <laughs> of so, course, of course. Um, yeah. any, any similarity to actual people is yeah. purely coincidental. It's, Bearing that in mind... <laughs> Look, I did put that in the front of this book, actually. I, I, be, um, no, not really. really? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's fiction. Um, I think I'm not... I'm not writing anything that's going to, that's that controversial really to, to, to worry about. I mean, absolutely it's based on truth. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of characters in there that are based on real characters. Um, most of them don't know that, but um, <laughs> they can guess. Uh, but, no, um, nobody yes. ever guesses. My experience is that no. if you write someone into the book, they'll sit there and say, oh, that evil character, gosh, they were dreadful. I don't know how you make these things up. <laughs> Nobody ever recognises themselves. <laughs> um, no, so no, I, I, it's it's no, it's not that sensitive in in that sense. And um, and to be honest, I think um, I'm trying to shine a light on a lot of the issues that we're shining a light on in the in the media. You know, at, at, you know, Carolyn's paper and app and the ABC and other media. Yep. These are things that are happening in the world today. And and I think the, the beauty of fiction. It, it actually gives you the, the freedom to explore these issues in a different way. You're not bound by the rules of, of non-fiction, um, which are good rules, by the way, but in fiction, you, you sometimes can actually get closer to the truth because yeah. you can create the characters, you can create the scenarios um, that, where you want to say what you want to say. Yeah. So that's actually quite liberating. Um, and because I'm writing fiction, then, um, you know, I can, I've got plausible deniability. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're, you're currently writing the fourth John Bailey book. Yep. Do you see yourself, I mean, like most of, all of your books have been in this series. So is there, is there a departure from John Bailey coming up or is he your alter ego? Is this how you're going to navigate <laughs> the literary world? Look, he, he's, he's not necessarily my alter ego. Like, Bailey has a lot to say. Um, some of that I would is absolutely some of the things that, that I think and feel and know. Um, but I wasn't a war correspondent. Um, you know, I've war worked with some fascinating, amazing people, both in you know Sky News in the UK when I worked there and, and at the ABC, um, and met a lot of fantastic people as well along the way. So for me, um, I think Bailey's character is a is an amalgam of a lot of people. Um, and his, his character is, is so interesting and real for me because I get to, with him to show all of you the toll 
that it takes on an individual who really is that obsessed with telling stories and, and what he would think are really important stories. And I've seen that with some foreign correspondents where, you know, they end up leading deeply dysfunctional lives or they've just got a lot of um, baggage they carry around with them. Um, if you're sent to a war zone um, to cover, you know, a conflict, you're going to see some stuff you're never going to unsee. Um, you never, ever unsee that, you know, that is with you for the rest of your life. Um, you don't know when that pops up, whether it's in your dreams or whether something triggers you in the street. And I talk to some people that have those experiences. So for me, that's why the Bailey character was important to get right for me, um, because I, I felt like I owed it to the journalists out there that have done the, the, the sort of journalism that he's done. Um, but And right now, um, to answer the question around whether he's my guy, like he is for now, I've got a lot more Bailey books to tell, I think. Um, I really enjoy, I guess, the vehicle and the other characters that I've built, the Annie Brooks and, you know, Sharon Dexter and, and you know, Ronnie Johnson and the, the characters I've built in the stories, um, whether I'd go back in time to tell some stories and, and forward as well. I think I've got plenty more there and I, I really enjoy it. Um, I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it because I get up at 5am on Saturday and Sunday to do this um, with a busy day job. But will I write standalone books um, away from the Bailey character down the track? Uh, absolutely. You know, I've got other ideas I'll like to explore, but um, right now I'm pretty happy in the, in the, in the Bailey world. Yeah. Yep. There's something... Um, I, I always found there's something really special about writing a long series in that with every, with every book you get attached to characters, yeah. in a long series you get more and more and more and more attached uh, till, you know, you get to a stage where that line between reality and what you're imagining starts to blur a little bit, at which point you should write a standalone. Detox. Yeah, detox a little mm. bit. Um, which is, yeah, so that... And, and of course, uh, John now has a dog... He does. Campo. Settling yeah. down. Campo. Campo. Yeah, yeah. So. Settling down. As a, as a Kiwi, I've, I've, I love the rugby reference, oh, by okay. the way. Thanks. No, we don't talk about Campo. Is that enough. a rugby no, reference? I was yeah. going to ask you, what yeah. did Campo mean? The, the yeah. proper, proper rugby, too. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Yeah. Oh, um, I think he likes camping. <laughs> Campo allows me to remember when Australia was good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a hark back to those you days. You sound like Scott Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> You're the first person to ever say that to me, by the way. You've got an elbow T-shirt in the front row. <laughs> yeah. Dirty shoes, Campo. Campo? No, it's Campo. 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 Uh, Campisi, right? Yeah. yeah. I was actually at, when he was uh, inaugurated into the Australian Sporting Hall of Fame, mm. I was there because I was a lawyer at the time and I was invited, and I, I found it the most amazing thing. They had a rugby league, league choir on union? stage, mm. and they had union. written this song that called Run Campo Run. <laughs> so, rugby union yeah. and uh, David Campo's, yeah. But you know, the other thing I'd say about Campo the dog, though, Campo the dog is a, is a female dog. Oh, and um, and his daughter, who gave it to gave Bailey the, it's a greyhound rescue dog, and and his daughter Miranda gave him the dog as someone to keep him company and, and look out, look look after him in a way, and for him to look after someone, and um, and she says to him, you, you can't call the dog Campo, it's a girl, and he said, well, Campo was graceful on the field. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, um, this book is written from the point of uh, view of Lena, mm. uh, and my recollection is that you've done that before with... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
all of them or uh, yeah, I, yeah, a number of them. So you prefer to write from the point of view um, of females? I, I kind of do, yeah, yeah, I think so. Is um, there a reason for that? No, it's no, a totally normal thing to do, Slurry. <laughs> no, uh, I'm not saying it no, isn't normal. No, I'm like, uh, uh, oddly, I... Took uh, a big gamble there, mate, yeah, No, no, no. <laughs> um, the next one is not. The next one's not. not. Um, and, yeah, no, I just think um, as a way into the story, it's, it's always worked, I think. Yep. Um, there, ha- there have been chapters in other books that are from yep. different perspectives. Yep. But I kind of... I've, I've tried to write a third-person per- perspective... Um, and just just doesn't sort of work for me. But yeah. the next one is yes, a split, and one of the characters is is a man. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you don't shy away from even particularly female perspectives on things like IVF and infertility yeah, yeah. as well. So it's it's you know it's not just like, writing a man in a dress type. No, no. Female, you're actually getting into the yeah, female psyche. Yeah, I mean, psyche. I think I think I'd also say. I mean, I, I um, it's it's in this day and age, it is um, it's it feels like a slight risk, and yeah. but but at the same time, I think my entire editorial team is um, a female. My wife's yep. female. Um, my first reader, my mother-in-law, is yep. female. So there's yeah, I do get a lot of feedback, and if I get it wrong, I, I like to think they let me know pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I think I just. I'm kind of courting controversy a little bit with it. But oh no! Well, I I was reading that book and it it didn't occur to me that you were writing the other gender or the opposite gender mm. until the end, uh, because it just your your voice as Lena seems so natural and real. Yeah, yeah. We maybe we'll have this conversation again in twenty years. No, no, <laughs> um, no. But you know, it, I think it's just. Yeah, I think. I think if you've got a great character and you can inhabit yeah. them enough in a way um, that you can write them in an authentic way, I think I, th- yeah. I think that works. But in saying that, it is it is a question I feel quite often. I have since Call Me Evie, my first book. Um, yeah. But it's also just it seem, they seem to be more interesting stories. Not no disrespect, Tim. Um, <laughs> no, but, but I, I do, and I and I think most of the books I read tend to be from a female perspective as yeah. well. So maybe that that plays into it. But um, yeah, I haven't I guess I haven't given enough thought to. Yeah, yeah, as to why it's yeah. just naturally. Mm. Caroline, you're the three major characters in The Cuckoo's Cry being Don Morgan and Danielle, who did you find yourself more sympathetic to or did you not? Mm. I don't know whether I was really feeling that I had to be sympathetic to any of them. Yeah. I felt like I wanted to I wanted readers to be able to relate to them, which was which was the key part for yeah. me. Well, I mean, I, I related to each of them when I was in their heads, which was what was difficult. When I was in Danielle's head, I was thinking, oh, that old man, <laughs> he's so difficult. Um, <laughs> and when I was in Don's head, you know, you could see, well, you know, why is Danielle being such a pain in the neck? And, you know, Morgan's just trying her best. And then Morgan's head was different again, um, which is a lovely way of actually showing people the the different um, motives and perspectives and needs. Um, to, to be honest with you, these things tend to work really well when you're doing audiobooks as well because they like uh, different voices. So sometimes you'll, the voices will change. And, in fact, I'm writing for one at the moment for them um, and they've specifically requested that it be able to be told in two voices. So that sometimes plays into your thinking too, which voices are going to be the most compelling. 
writing fiction is very different from writing non-fiction, and I've, and I've done both. When I do non-fiction, I almost never, in fact, I don't think I've ever written in the first person, never. It's always been uh, in third person. So uh, that fiction gives me an opportunity to speak from the point of view of a wide range of characters, whereas when, for example, I was writing the book about the little boy, William Tyrrell, or about uh, Louisa Collins, who was a woman who was hanged in, at the Darlinghurst Jail, which is a true story. Um, it's a much uh, more sober approach. You're not exuberant with your language. You're very precise. Um, and as you said before, you, you have far fewer freedoms when you're dealing with non-fiction. You have to deal specifically with the facts. And the William Tyrrell book, my goodness, and then when it became the documentary as well, there were so many suppression orders in place as well. It's it's probably the most suppressed story that I have ever covered in 30 years of journalism. The suppression orders would astound you if you saw the list of them, the things you cannot say about that story, which has left the public, I think, feeling very confused about what's happened to that little boy and why things are happening now. Um, and it's largely because the courts have intervened at various levels um, to make sure that you can't know, which which actually offends me in, in many ways because I feel like you can be trusted, that if they were to say, look, this is the situation, this is what we think happened, you could be trusted with that information. That's not something that's beyond the Australian imagination. Um, and, yet, and yet it's withheld from you and so, of course, speculation runs rife online and people who are innocent are accused and um, suffering is unimaginable for people out who are close to William. Fascinating. In, in, in America, you just have a camera in the court, which would just be seeing the whole lot. Yeah, and, and I, don't disagree, I don't necessarily think that's right. Mm. I quite like the camera on the judge. When the mm. judge delivers his verdict, I like to see the judge. I've really enjoyed that development. Mm. We saw it, I think, in the Pearl case, where you were able to see the yep. judge as he delivered his verdict. Um, and we've seen it a couple of times since. I don't oppose suppression orders that protect children. And in this particular case, there is a child that deserves and demands privacy. She is trying to grow up in a very small town. Sydney is a small town. Everybody knows who she is. And so she's trying to grow up. It's very, very difficult. But there are a number of suppression orders that make absolutely no sense, that have just confused the issue so much that I have seen people, people come up to me all the time and say, oh, I know, I know who did it. It was this person. And I think, have you any idea how much pain and trauma that person is suffering without imagining that most people think that they did it? I mean, it's just, it's awful. And the only reason people think they did do it is because the suppression orders are kind of leading people that way, um, which, is, which is awful. Uh, now, I noticed on the clock that we have 12 minutes left, so I don't want to take away your opportunity to ask questions. So I'll call for them now. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for a wonderful morning. Uh, uh, my, my question, since it, we're in the election period, has any politician approached any of you regarding, uh, regarding policy formulation? <laughs> and with, uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask that simple question. Have you ever been approached by... I can, I'll, go no, I'll go first, no. I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a hard no on that, but I feel like you two might be... Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a hard no. I mean, you, you, of, course, of course politicians will be, um, you know, seeking quiet conversations to push their, their line or get, you know, make sure we properly understand things, but um, no, no. Look, we just do our jobs, ask our questions, and they we have to answer them. probably don't read. 
<laughs> they don't read, yeah. That's true. Well, some of them, certainly. Um, Caroline? Well, I'm the literary editor um, at The Australian, so the only politician I really deal with um, is Paul Fletcher, who's the arts minister. Um, I'm a judge of the uh, Prime Minister's Literary Awards uh, for fiction and for poetry, um, but the government has no role at all in the judging process, as far as I can tell. Um, I was just given a list of 160 books and <laughs> divided them up with the other judges and, and we're in the process of reading them and it's fabulous how much talent there is out there. Just fabulous. But that's really the only contact I have with government. It's a straight no, really. Yeah. I mean, our, our democracy doesn't allow. Yeah. Not this election, anyway. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just interested in the process of choosing a time frame to write in. Uh, you talked about the bushfires, you talked about COVID, and you might choose, for example, to go a bit further back in time. Being a writer myself and making these choices as well, when technology is changing so quickly and you're talking about whether people use mobile phones, what apps they're using, what software, what is it Facebook, was it ICQ, was it Skype... Did you find that really challenging to actually lock down in time? This is what I'm dealing with and I can't use Facebook because it wasn't existing then or I have to use this or I can't use this. Do you find that challenging with the pace of how things are changing and how hard it is to keep up? Um, it's a good question. Uh, so yesterday I spoke in front of 700 high school students um, with an absolutely cracking hangover. Um, <laughs> you was, or them, JP? Uh, <laughs> I, you don't have a hangover. They might have been drunk, and I thought they they won't experience that sort of hangover for twenty years. It was a it was a it was a doozy. Um, but afterwards, in the signing queue, they're like, because they're buying different books, which I didn't think would happen, by the way, with students. But um, a few of them bought my first book, and it's a, kind of about teenagers a little bit. And I, I had to keep saying, there's this artefact in this book. You've never heard of it. Um, but the teenagers are using it, and it's called Facebook. And, and they were sort of like, oh, no, we've heard of that. And I go, yeah, but back then it wasn't where old people argued about politics. <laughs> used to organise parties. It was cool, trust me. Um, and just the facade of any coolness I got from the, you know, borderline wearing glasses on stage, it was so hungover. All that went out the window, like, who is this old creep talking about this borderline defunct um, social media platform? But um, my point is, it, it, I find, yeah, you're right, with the way that social media rapidly changes, well, as soon as you put it in there, it's, there's something sort of marking it as of this time. And, like, TikTok is the big thing now. But as soon as, like, it moves through the generations the kids move on to saying else. And it's sort of, I think that really does um, put it to kind of, yeah, marks it as, as of a certain time. And I like the idea of writing something in the 90s, you know, when it was just, it's just sort of ambiguous, the time frame, but it kind of works. And saying that, I do like to write things that when they come out, they feel really contemporary. Um, and so I think I'll always do it. I think I'll always be tethered to this kind of thing where it instantly becomes historical fiction when the next kind of social media... <laughs> in the next five minutes. Yeah. Oh, my my think... sons have made me promise to stay off TikTok because they don't want my you generation now, ruining the, I reckon. the platform. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing the dances. And yeah. the... They, they, they see us as the death knell to yeah. a platform. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> correct. The yeah. second you're on there, they're off. Yeah. Yeah. But I, um, I don't think you need to tie yourself up in knots on it. I think that you do, you know, you've got, um, the, there's definitely consideration. You've got to do your research, as Josh was saying, 
to make sure that you, you, you're close to the mark on something. But um, look, I, I think that people know that they're reading fiction. Unless the technology is absolutely integral to the, the plot, the twist, probably most importantly, but the, the story itself, you've got to get that right. But, um, but otherwise, you know, I think, to be honest, you can make up a, a, a technology as well, remember. Um, it just needs to do what you need it to do. Or the, or the old technology. I'm reading um, Jennifer Light, uh, Jennifer, 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 Bodies of Light, Jennifer Down, help me here. Jennifer Down's Bodies of Light at the moment. And she has a child in it who's uh, cutting out those old dolls and making the stand and standing them up and putting the clothes on with the little flaps. And oh my God, I was transported back in time. Do you like that in the 80s was pretty high tech? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what else? Though? But you got me thinking as well, though, Josh, that um, you want to write something in the 90s. You think back, like Raymond Chandler, that, he had it easy, right? Yeah, he had a, right. a typewriter and he had a fixed phone. That's and right. that's it. That's so right. otherwise, you're on, when, you're, when you're a detective or private investigator, you're on the case, yeah. driving a car, you yeah. know, if you've got one. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, no cameras, no CCTV. No, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, COVID has, certainly so brought easy, a yeah. surge in historical fiction writing out. Yeah. And I, and it's I a wondered, very good question, yeah. though. It's great because how yeah. do you avoid those traps? Yeah, the, you write yeah. historical fiction. That's a good easy, way of avoiding yeah. it. But, yeah. but I find um, in my next book, there's TikTok and... Something else weird. Uh, TikTok and oh, and crypto. Oh, yeah. Crypto. Like, Crypto's these, over, mate. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm like these are already <laughs> kind of you know like people are sort of moving on a little bit from these things. I'm like, and the books have been out. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I was so a Bitcoin it's, billionaire for about a minute. Yeah. And I lost it all. Yeah. No, that's. I feel like everyone is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any other questions? Yes, please. Short. Um, you all write crime um, and you all come from different backgrounds. So, and most as writers write what they know, but how do you make your stories authentic in terms of uh, the crime world? Um, I'm a police officer of 23 years, just finished. Oh, I'm but I write from um, more a policing background and I'm trying to get into the head of criminals and that sort of thing. So how do you compound <laughs> that and get your so how do you do it? <laughs> how do you... Uh, was well, a journalist... Um, yeah. Is it like you uh, talk to people? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I've got some of the AFP talks to me. I've got a, another cop that talks to me. Um, I've got other people in, in intelligence sort of thing that I talk to. Um, so it's making sure you, you, you know the things you don't know. So um, make sure you do your research and, and find out. But I think also... The, I'd say maybe this is advice for you as a writer as well, um, as someone with a cop background, don't get too in the weeds on the actual technical, because it gets a bit boring. So you need to, you've got to have like a plausible, you know, situation. But there are important things to get right. Like I sat down with a guy, he's, um, you know, a special ops sort of cop, and he talked me through exactly how they would do a raid, right down to what everyone's role is, um, you know, the ram that's used to bash open the door, the order they go in. I found that fascinating. I didn't know how much of it I'd use, but actually just hearing him using all the lingo and the language um, was, re was really helpful. So the answer is, so for you, you're going to need non-cop people to talk to to make sure you get that part of it right. So I just think, you know, just 
constantly ask questions. And that's, I think, as a journalist background, that's what I do, and Caroline would be the same, and Josh has got an inquisitive mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but true. I'd encourage you to keep going, because I think that more ex-police officers should yeah. be writing not mm. books, because really, I know the stories that you have not told, or the stories that have not been told. That, yeah. yeah. There's, yeah, a, few, there's a couple of Kiwi uh, former detectives who write great crime. Um, I, think you, I think that's a really good point. Jock Strong has this weird rule, because he writes... Um, he has a sort of exactitude about his historical fiction, but he said there's always, he gets one email for every book at least. Uh, someone who knows the, the subject slightly better than him, and he said you don't write for the 2% who uh, ex have a greater level of expertise in whatever you're writing because they're not going to fall into the story anyway. If there's things that distract them, they're not going to like it anyway. So um, I think it's true. I think, yeah, just ignore some of the procedural things if it's in service of the plot maybe um which i which i do i, t I talk to police sometimes um even sometimes about my fiction as well uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and no but I, t I have a contact um who just that's just fact checking i just say is this possible could this happen um as opposed to going to him before and trying to generate you know what the scene would would be like yeah okay Sorry, can I just ask one little thing? Carolyn, um, really true crime, because I've got, like I used to work at coroner's court and I've worked on some inquests and things like that and we've got all these ideas, but how do you approach people for true crime? Like, how do you get it, get involved in, you know, the story and getting to the police and the families and that sort of thing? True crime is incredibly difficult because you are dealing with real families and real emotions and I do it... Um, as delicately as possible. And I'm always at the forefront of my mind is the idea that this is not my story. This is their life. It's their life. And I learnt a lot from my friend Dan Brown, who wrote the Barrowville book about the missing Aboriginal children. When he went down to sit down with the aunties up there, the aunties scolded him when he said, I've come here to tell a story, I'm going to write this book. And they're like, it's not yours. We live this trauma every day. And he sort of took a step back and tried to understand that when you're dealing with true crime, you're not telling a story. We can come up here and tell all kinds of jokes about our fiction because it's not real. We want you to be entertained. We want you to enjoy it. We want you pulled along to the end. But when I'm writing true crime, I'm very conscious that there are people out there in the city in which I live who are bleeding every day with this stuff. And, and so it's different. It's different. Okay, so I think we've expended our time. Thank you all so very much for coming. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.